Section 49 of Junior Classics, Volume 5, Stories That Never Grow Old. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Junior Classics, Volume 5, Stories That Never Grow Old, edited by William Patton. Section 49, Guy Mannering, Part 2. The day after his arrival at the village of Kippletringen, he determined to see Miss Mannering, and learning that she was likely to be found with a party of skaters on a lake in the neighborhood, he proceeded in that direction. The skating party, of whom Julia Mannering was one, consisted of herself and Lucy Bertram, and young Charles Hazelwood, who, as before mentioned, was Miss Bertram's lover. Having spent some time upon the ice, they were returning to Woodbourne through the plantation. Hazelwood, who had a gun with him, had offered his arm to Miss Mannering, who was tired after skating as they walked towards home. When they had proceeded some little distance in this way, Brown happened to meet them. He was wearing the rough suit in which he had spent the night in the gypsy's house, having been unable to procure a change on account of his portmanteau having been stolen. Julia Mannering, who had had no intimation that her old lover was in the district, uttered a scream when she suddenly saw him standing before her, and Hazelwood, fancying from the rough appearance of the stranger that he was either a gypsy or a tramp, pointed his gun towards him and ordered him to keep off. Brown, in a fit of jealousy and fearing that the gun might go off, rushed upon Hazelwood and seized the fowling piece. But in the struggle which ensued between them, it was discharged by accident, and young Hazelwood fell to the ground, wounded in the shoulder. Brown, when he saw what had occurred, became frightened at the thought of the dangers of his position. He bounded over a hedge which divided the footpath from the plantation, and was not heard of again for a considerable time. On the news of Hazelwood's being wounded getting abroad, the neighborhood was thrown into a ferment of indignation. All the circumstances of the occurrence were exaggerated. It was universally believed that the attacking party was a smuggler or a gypsy, and that he had attempted in broad daylight to murder the young man. It was stated that the assailant had been seen earlier in the day wearing a smuggler's cutlass, and the purse which had been left at the inn was opened and found to contain property which had been previously stolen. Charles Hazelwood himself, however, continued to protest that the wounding was accidental, while the only person who could give any real account of the mysterious stranger, namely Julia Mannering, for reasons best known to herself, never pretended that she had any idea who he was. Amongst those who were most active in their endeavors to capture the missing Brown was Glosson, the new Laird of Ilangowan. It was plain, too, that he had some other motive for apprehending him than merely the desire to do his duty as a magistrate of the county, which he had now become. On returning to his house one day, he was informed that MacGuffick, the thief-taker, had made a prisoner, and that he was waiting with him in the kitchen. When the prisoner was introduced to the magistrate's room, Glosson at once recognized that it was Dirk Hatterack, the smuggler captain. In the interview which took place between them, no one else being present, it transpired that Glosson had been a kind of partner with a smuggler at the time of Kennedy's murder, and the disappearance of young Harry Bertram, 
Derek Hatterack told him too very plainly that if he was to be condemned he would let the secret out and ruin Glossin Glossin who was much terrified at the thought of being discovered then arranged like a villain that he was to imprison Hatterack for that night in a room in the old castle of Elangowan and at the same time give him a small file with which he might rid himself of his handcuffs and escape during the interview between them Hatterack also told the attorney that young Bertram was still alive and at Kippletringen. Glossin's situation was therefore perilous in the extreme, for the schemes of a life of villainy seemed at once to be crumbling around and about him. Hatterack was accordingly then sent to his place of confinement in the old castle. At midnight, Glossin looked out from his bedroom towards the castle and after watching for some time in an agony of guilty suspense he saw the dark form of a man whom he knew to be hatterack drop from the prison window and make his way to the beach where he succeeded in shoving out a boat which was lying there in a few minutes after he had hoisted the sail and soon disappeared round the point of warwick great was the alarm and confusion the next morning when it was discovered that the smuggler had escaped from prison Constables were sent in every direction to search for him and Glossin took care to send them to places where they would be least likely to find him In the meantime he himself made his way to a cave by the seashore near the point of Warwick Where he had arranged with Hatterack to meet him the day after his escape Glossin had never been near this spot since the day on which the unfortunate Kennedy was murdered and the terrible scene came back to his mind with all its accompaniments of horror as he stealthily approached the cavern when he reached it and went in he found Hatterack in the dark and shivering with cold during the conversation that ensued between them he learned from the smuggler what had become of young Bertram after Kennedy's murder he had been taken to Holland, Hatterack said, and left with an old merchant named Van Beest Brown, who took a fancy to the boy and called him by his own name. He had afterwards been sent to India, but the smuggler knew nothing of him from the time he went there. Bertram had, however, been seen, he said a few days before, among the hills by a gypsy named Gabriel. Glossin then discovered for the first time that it was young Bertram in reality. Who had wounded Hazelwood in his terror at the thought of losing his property at Elangowan if it came to be known that Harry Bertram was alive Yet at all times fertile in every kind of villainous device Glossin now hit upon a new plan to get rid of the man who stood between him and his peace of mind By making large promises to Hatterack he induced the smuggler to agree to come by night with a large body of his men to the prison where Bertram would be confined for his attack on Hazelwood and to break open the doors and carry him off He said he would have the soldiers withdrawn on some pretense or other so as to make the rescue more certain and Having completed the details of this desperate and lawless piece of villainy he went back to Elangowan but it is time to return to Brown who was now a fugitive from justice in Consequence of the unlucky accident of which his rashness had been the cause He determined to make his way to England and to wait there until he received letters from friends in his regiment Establishing his identity in possession of which he could again show himself at Kippletringen and offer to young Hazelwood any explanation or satisfaction that he might require he accordingly took ship for Cumberland 
he chanced on board to meet a man whose daughter was at the time in Colonel Mannering's service at Woodbourne, and by his means contrived to get a letter delivered to Miss Mannering, in which he begged of her to forgive him for his rash conduct towards Hazelwood. Having landed on the English coast, he wrote to the colonel of his regiment for such testimony of his rank in the army as should place his character as a gentleman and an officer beyond question and as he was now reduced to great straits for want of funds he wrote to his sturdy farmer friend dandy dinmont for the loan of a little money after a delay of some days he received a short letter from miss mannering in which she upbraided him for his thoughtless conduct and bade him good-bye telling him on no account to come back to woodbourne on reading it over he came somehow to the conclusion that miss mannering meant the opposite of all that she had written and in this belief he set sail at once for kippletringen after a rough and dangerous voyage by night he found himself in the morning off the scottish coast the weather had now cleared a woody cape that stretched into the sea lay some little distance from the vessel and in answer to brown's inquiries the boatman told him that it was warwick point close beside it was the old castle of elangowan and brown felt a strange longing as he looked at it to be put ashore for the purpose of examining it more closely the boatman readily acceded to his wishes and landed him on the beach beneath the ruins and thus in complete ignorance of his own real identity surrounded by dangers and without the assistance of a friend within the circle of several hundred miles accused of a heavy crime and almost penniless did the weary wanderer for the first time after an interval of many eventful years approach the remains of the castle where his ancestors had once dwelt in lordly splendor it will have dawned upon the reader before now that the young soldier known to him as brown was in reality no other than the harry bertram who had disappeared on the day when kennedy was murdered the name of brown will consequently be dropped during the remainder of the story and our hero will be called by his proper appellation bertram after wandering for some time through the ruined apartments of the castle he stepped outside and happened by chance to stand on the very spot where his father the old laird of elangowan had died glossen at that moment chanced to be engaged close by with the surveyor in reference to some building plans connected with an intended addition to his house and he was just saying to his companion that the whole ruin should be pulled down when bertram met him and said would you destroy this fine old castle sir his face person and voice were so exactly like those of his father when alive that glossen almost believed that the grave had given up its dead but after a time he recovered his self-possession and then set himself to discover if bertram whom he recognized had any knowledge of his own identity he was much terrified when he heard him repeat some lines of an old song which he said he had learnt in his childhood the dark shall be light and the wrong made right when bertram's right and bertram's might shall meet on but although he could not recall the end of the last line glossen thought he knew already a good deal too much about it a few of glossen's men were now seen approaching up the slope whereupon he immediately assumed a different attitude and tone toward bertram i believe your name is brown sir said glossen and what of that sir replied bertram why in that case said glossen you are my prisoner in the king's name 
After a slight resistance, the prisoner was secured, and shortly after was brought before Sir Robert Hazlewood, one of the county's magistrates, and accused of maliciously wounding Charles Hazlewood, his son. In reply to the questions put to him, the prisoner said that he was a captain in the regiment of horse in his majesty's service and in a frank manly way described how the wounding of charles hazlewood was merely an accident for which he expressed a sincere sorrow when required to give some proof of his rank in the army he stated that his luggage had been stolen when asked to say where he had spent the night on which it was taken his promise to meg merrily's came to his mind and he replied that he must refuse to answer that question he was then pressed to account for his having worn a smuggler's cutlass but he also declined to explain that matter and his answers were equally unsatisfactory when questioned on the subject of the purse which the gypsy had given him having failed to give any explanation of so many suspicious circumstances the warrant for his committal to jail was made out although he stated that colonel mannering whom he had known in india could if sent for give evidence of his character and rank the colonel was however away from home at the time and the friendless and unfortunate bertram was removed to prison pending mannering's return and now said glossin to himself to find derrick hatterack and his people to get the guard sent off and then for the grand cast of the dice and so saying he hastened away to complete with the smuggler captain the villainous plan on which they had previously agreed the prison in which bertram now found himself was a building which adjoined the custom house and both were close beside the sea mcguffick who had been already mentioned was at the time the keeper and a gruff and surly custodian he was too bertram however succeeded in procuring from him the luxury of a separate room by promising the keeper a large sum of money he was accordingly ushered into a small ill-furnished apartment through the barred windows of which he could get a glimpse of the sea which was dashing sullenly against the outer walls as he was reflecting on his miserable situation his attention was attracted by a loud knocking at the gate of the jail and shortly after his little dog wasp which he had left in the care of dandy dinmont and dinmont himself was shown into his room bertram was delighted to have his old friend with him and in answer to his eager inquiries as to how he came to be in prison told him about the accident to young hazlewood and that he had been mistaken for a smuggler dinmont on his part then related how he came to know of bertram's being locked up gabriel the huntsman on the moors he said had informed him in a mysterious way that bertram was in jail and that he was badly in need of a good friend to stay with him night and day for a day or two dinmont added that he had ridden sixty miles that day to come to his assistance they were interrupted in their conversation by mac guffig who told them that it was time for the visitor to leave and by means of further promises he was induced to allow dinmont to spend the night in the same room with his friend and in no long time after the two occupants of the wretched apartment were fast asleep colonel mannering who had been from home for some days returned to woodbourne the night of the day on which bertram had been sent to prison the morning after his arrival the dominie who even after so many years continued to blame himself for the loss of little harry made his way in a spirit of curiosity to warwick point a place he had never approached since the child had disappeared 
as he wandered home again filled with gloomy recollections of the day of kennedy's murder his steps bore him to the neighborhood of Durnclue, with its ruined remains of the old gypsy village the place had for many years had the reputation of being haunted more especially the tower or came of Durnclue. as he was passing by it the door suddenly opened and meg merrily stepped out and stood before him the dominie believing she was some sorceress addressed her in latin but the gypsy queen angrily interrupted him listen ye fool to what i tell ye she said or ye'll rue it while there's a limb of ye hangs together tell colonel mannering that i know he's seeking me he knows and i know that the blood will be wiped out and the lost will be found and bertram's right and bertram's might shall meet on elangowan height give him this letter don't fail and tell him the time's coming now bid him to look at the stars as he looked at them before and to do what i desire him in the letter she then led the frightened dominie by a shortcut through the woods for about a quarter of a mile and on reaching the common told him to stand still look she said how the setting sun breaks through the cloud that's been darkening the sky all day see the stream of light that falls on the old tower of elangowan that's not for nothing here i stood she went on stretching out her long sinewy arm and clenched hand here i stood when i told the last laird of elangowan what was coming on his house and did that fall to the ground and here i stand again to bid god prosper the just heir of elangowan that will soon be brought to his own i'll no live to see it maybe but there will be many a blithe eye see it though mine be closed and now abel sampson as ever ye loved the house of elangowan away with my message to the english colonel as if life and death were upon your haste so saying she turned suddenly from the amazed dominie who hurried back to woodbourne exclaiming as he went prodigious 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 the kindly interest of meg Merrilies in the fate of bertram did not however end here shortly after quitting the dominie she met young hazelwood on the road and told him in a mysterious way that the guard of soldiers had been drawn off from the custom-house and brought to his father's house in the expectation of an attack being made upon it that night nobody means to touch his house she added so send the horsemen back to their post quietly they will have to work tonight the guns will flash and the swords will glitter in the moonlight she then asked him if he bore any malice to the man that wounded him and on hazelhurst assuring her that he had always thought it was an accident she said then do what i bid ye for if he was left to his ill-wishers he would be a bloody corpse ere morn and she then disappeared into the wood charles hazelwood who now felt certain that some diabolical plot was on foot for the murder of the man who had accidentally wounded him rode back at once to his father's house he found the place occupied with dragoons and instantly endeavored to persuade his father to send them back to the custom house glossin had however impressed the old man with a fixed idea of impending danger to his house and he refused to allow the soldiers to go while his son was still arguing with him the sheriff of the county came in hurriedly and told him that he had information that the removal of the troops from the custom house was only part of a plan and that they should at once return orders were accordingly given without delay and the dragoons were shortly after on their way again to the place from which they came but we must return to bertram and his companion in their unpleasant abode in the prison 
Towards midnight, Bertram woke after his first sleep. The air of the small apartment had become close and confined, and he got up for the purpose, if possible, of opening the window. His failure to open it reminded him painfully that he was now a prisoner. He was no longer inclined to sleep, so he continued for some time to gaze out on the troubled sea as it rolled under the indistinct light of a hazy and often overclouded moon. As he looked, he fancied he saw in the distance a boat being rowed toward the shore, and before long he found that he had not been mistaken. The boat, which was a large one, drew nearer and nearer and as it reached the land some twenty men jumped on shore and disappeared up a dark passage which divided the prison from the custom-house almost immediately after bertram could hear a tumult in the outer yard of the bridewell and being unable to guess what its meaning was he awoke dinmont the smell of fire now commenced to reach the room and on dinmont looking out of the window he exclaimed lord sake captain come here they have broken in the custom-house Looking from the prison window, they could see the gang of smugglers hurrying here and there, some with lighted torches, others carrying barrels toward the shore. It was plain, too, from the thick clouds of smoke that rolled past the window that the prison was itself on fire. Dinmont roared loudly for McCuffick to let them out, but all was silent in the jail. Outside the shouts of the smugglers and the mob resounded far and wide, and it seemed as if the keeper had himself escaped and left his prisoners to perish in the flames. But now a new and fierce attack was heard at the outer gate. It was soon forced in with sledgehammers and crows, and before long some three or four of the principal smugglers hurried to the apartment of Bertram with lighted torches and armed with cutlasses and pistols. Two of them seized on Bertram but one of them whispered in his ear, Make no resistance till you're outside. They dragged him roughly to the gate, but amid the riot and confusion which prevailed, the sound as of a body of horse advancing was heard. A few moments after, the dragoons were engaged with the rioters. Shots were fired, and the glittering broadswords of the soldiers began to flash in the air. Now, whispered the man at Bertram's left, shake off that fellow and follow me. Bertram, with a violent and sudden effort, burst away from the man on his right, and closely following his mysterious friend, attended by the faithful Dinmont, who never left him, ran quickly down a narrow lane which led from the main street. No pursuit took place, as the smugglers had enough to do to defend themselves against the dragoons. At the end of the lane there was a post-chaise and horses waiting. "'Are you here in God's name?' said the guide to the driver. "'Aye, troth I am,' said he. "'Open the carriage, then. You gentlemen get into it. In a short time you'll be in a place of safety, and remember your promise to the gypsy wife.' Bertram and Dinmont got in at once, followed by little Wasp, and in a moment found themselves travelling at a breakneck pace, neither of them knowing where on earth they were going to. They were, in fact, on the way to Woodbourne, for the carriage had been sent by Colonel Mannering, after he had read the letter which the Dominie brought him from Meg Merrilies. The note had given him no intimation, however, of the persons who were to be conveyed in the chaise to Woodbourne, merely telling him that it should bring the folk that should ask if it were there in God's name. As the Colonel's clock was striking one that night, the sound of carriage wheels was heard in the distance, and in no long space after, Bertram and Dinmont found themselves at Woodbourne. Bewilderment and astonishment were depicted on the faces of all as Bertram stepped into the parlour. 
the colonel saw before him the man whom he supposed he had killed in india julia beheld her lover and lucy bertram at once recognized the person who had fired upon young hazelwood each one remained silent not knowing what to say when the absent-minded dominie looking up from a book he had been studying in a corner exclaimed if the grave can give up the dead that is my dear and honored master a lawyer friend of the colonel's a mr playdall was staying at the woodbourne that night and he at once set about endeavoring to solve the mystery he questioned bertram as to his recollections of childhood and elicited from him some of the incidents of his early life with which the reader is already acquainted amongst the persons whom bertram recalled there was he said a tall thin kind-tempered man who used to teach me my letters and walk with me on hearing this the poor dominie could contain his feelings no longer and rising hastily from his chair with clasped hands trembling limbs and streaming eyes he called out aloud harry bertram look at me was i not the man yes said bertram starting from his seat as if a sudden light had burst in upon his mind yes that was my very name and that is the voice and the figure of my kind old master the following day colonel mannering and mr playdall succeeded in getting sir robert hazelwood to accept bail for bertram while they were so engaged bertram with his newly found sister and miss mannering went walking to the castle of elangowan close by the ruin they were suddenly confronted by meg merrilies who addressed bertram saying remember your promise and follow me it was in vain that his sister and her companion urged him not to go with the gypsy he told them that he must obey then bidding them good-bye he started to follow meg merrilies accompanied by dinmont who had come up a few minutes before with quick long strides the gypsy proceeded straight across the wintry heath she turned neither to the left nor to the right and moved more like a ghost than a human being on reaching the wood she plunged into it moving still rapidly in the direction of durnclue after traveling thus for some time she came at length to the ruined tower where bertram had previously spent the night in concealment from the smugglers producing a key from her pocket the gypsy opened the door and led the way in she offered bertram and dinmont food and drink and fearing to offend her they took a little and now she said ye must have arms but use them not rashly take captive but save life let the law have its own he must speak ere he die she then supplied the two with loaded pistols and started afresh through the wood in the direction of warwick point she led them by a long and winding passage almost overgrown with brushwood until they suddenly found themselves by the seashore they were soon outside the secret cave follow me as i creep in she said i have placed the firewood so as to screen you bide behind it for a space till i say the hour and the man are both come then run in on him take his arms and bind him tight and having said so she crept in upon her hands and knees followed by bertram and his friend as they were creeping in dinmont who was the last of the party felt his leg caught by someone from behind he with difficulty suppressed a shout and was much relieved when he heard a voice behind him say be still i am a friend charles hazelwood he had been sent after the others by lucy bertram and miss mannering and had only overtaken them as they were making their way into the cavern 
Meg Merrilies, on reaching the interior, was greeted by Derek Hatterack with a curse in his old fashion. The smuggler had been expecting her, and was waiting with anxiety for news of his band. The only light within the cave was from a charcoal fire. The dark red glow from which gave a dismal and unearthly appearance to the smuggler's hiding place. Bertram and his friends had advanced far enough to enable them to stand upright, and concealed from the view of Hatterack, they listened to his conversation with the gypsy. "'Have you seen Glossin?' he said to her. "'No,' replied Meg Merrilies. "'You've missed your blow, ye blood-spiller, and ye have nothing to expect from the tempter.' "'What am I to do, then?' said the smuggler, with a Dutch oath. "'Do?' answered the gypsy. "'Die like a man, or be hanged like a dog. Didn't I tell ye, when ye took away the boy, Harry Bertram, in spite of my prayers, that he would come back again in his twenty-first year? You'll never need to leave this.' "'What makes you say that?' asked Hatterack. And Meg, who now threw some flax upon the fire, which rose in a bright flame, answered, "'Because the hour and the man are both come.' At the appointed signal, Bertram and his companions rushed upon Hatterack. The ruffian, who instantly saw he was betrayed, turned his first vengeance on Meg Merrilies, at whom he discharged a pistol. She fell with a piercing shriek, muttering, I knew it would be this way. A terrific struggle ensued between the smuggler and his assailants, in which Hatterack contrived to discharge a second bullet at Bertram, which only missed its mark by a lucky accident. Strong, however, as the ruffian was, he was not equal to the joint efforts of the three men, and at length he was fairly mastered, disarmed, and tightly bound. Hazelwood, whose horse was outside the cave, then rode off for assistance, and after some time returned with several others. The prisoner was carried out, still firmly bound, and also Meg Merrilies, who was still living, though desperately wounded in the chest. They wished to take her to the nearest cottage but she refused to be moved anywhere but to the cave of Durnclew. Accordingly, they bore her to the vault in the ruined tower. The alarm had now spread through the countryside that Kennedy's murderer had been taken on the very spot where the murder had been committed years before, and a crowd of people with a clergyman and a surgeon had flocked to the place where the dying gypsy lay. She, however, refused all offers of assistance and called for Harry Bertram. When Bertram approached the wretched bed on which she lay, she took his hand. "'Look at him,' she said to those about her, "'the image of his dead father. And hear me now, let that man,' pointing to Hatterack, "'deny what I say if he can.' And then she told the story of how the young boy had been carried off from Warwick Wood, how she saved his life from smugglers who would have murdered him, and how she swore an oath to keep the secret till he was one and twenty and vowed that if she lived to see the day of his return, she would set him again in his father's seat, though every step was on a dead man. Derek Hatterack, she said, you and I will never meet again until we are before the judgment seat. Will ye dare deny it? And as Hatterack refused to open his lips, she added, Farewell, and God forgive you. Your hand has sealed my evidence. And shortly after, as she heard the crowd about her greet Bertram with enthusiastic cheers as the true laird of Elangowan, her troubled spirit passed peacefully away. The following day, Hatterack was brought before the magistrates at Kippeltringen. The dying declaration of Meg Merrilies was proved by the surgeon and the clergyman who had heard it. Bertram again told his recollections of early childhood. 
Gabriel, the gypsy, the same man who had avoided meeting Bertram's eye when out hunting with Dandy Dinman, told the whole story of Kennedy's murder as he was at Warwick Point on the day of its occurrence. He stated that Glosson was present and accepted a bribe to keep the matter a secret. This witness also stated that it was he that had told his aunt, Meg Merrilies, that Bertram had returned to the country, and that it was by her orders that three or four of the gypsies had mingled in the crowd when the custom house was attacked for the purpose of helping Bertram to escape. He also added that Meg Merrilies had often said that Harry Bertram carried the proof of his birth hung round his neck. Bertram here produced the velvet bag which had been worked by his mother and which he said he had always continued to wear. On its being opened, Colonel Mannering instantly recognized his own writing on the paper it enclosed, proving to everyone's satisfaction that the wearer was the real heir of Elangowan. The investigation was concluded by both Hatterack and Glosson being sent to jail. A smuggler, whose violence and strength were well known, was secured in what was called the Condemned Ward. In this apartment, which was near the top of the prison, his feet were chained to an iron bar firmly fixed at the height of about six inches from the floor. The chain enabled him to move a distance of about four feet from the bar, and when thus secured, his handcuffs were removed. Glosson was confined in another room, his mind still teeming with schemes of future deceit to cover his former villainies. As he reflected on his position, he came to a determination to see Hatterack, if possible, and to induce him, by a tempting bribe, to give evidence in his favor when his trial came on. Accordingly, when McGuffig, the keeper, appeared at night-time, he gave him some gold pieces, and so obtained his consent to an interview with his fellow-prisoner. The keeper, however, told him that as the prison rules were now much stricter than before, his seeing Hatterack would only be on the condition that he should spend the whole night with him. As the prison clock told ten, Glosson slipped off his shoes and silently followed McGuffig to the smuggler's room. As he entered, the door was locked on the outside, and he found himself alone with the former partner of his guilt. The cell was so dark that it was some time before he could detect the form of the smuggler, who was lying on a pallet bed beside the bar. Derek Hatterack, he whispered, and the smuggler, recognizing his voice, told him with a curse to be gone. Speak to me no more, I'm dangerous. Then said Glosson, losing his temper, at least get up for an obstinate Dutch brute. But he had barely uttered the words when Hatterack sprang from where he lay and grappled with him. So sudden and irresistible was the attack that Glosson fell, the back part of his neck coming full upon the iron bar with stunning violence, nor did the ruffian release the deadly grip upon his throat until the last remnant of life had left his victim's miserable corpse. On the day following the death of Glosson, Derek Hatterack was himself found dead in the cell, having hanged himself by means of a cord taken from his bed, which he had cunningly contrived to attach to the prison wall. Little more remains to be told. Bertram was before long restored to the possession of his father's house and property, and Julia Mannering became his wife. His sister Lucy found a husband in her old lover, Charles Hazelwood, and the Dominie was raised once again to a condition of ecstatic happiness, seeing his little Harry, as he still continued to call him, now Laird of Elangowan, and himself 
librarian in the house to which he had been so long a stranger. End of section 49